Are we seeing a dangerous decline in the historical profession? I'll talk about that on episode 764 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Again, find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Give me that email address while you're there. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. It's a great way to support the show. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you get your podcast. If you want to support it financially, click on that super thanks button under the YouTube video if you're watching it there, or become a member at anchor.fm, or throw a few pennies my way at brianmcclanahan.com. Those are great ways to support the show financially, but again, share it around on social media, let people know you love it, and get people listening to the program. Send me those show requests too, I do want you to see what you want to hear. All right, well let's talk about the opening there. Is Are we seeing a dangerous decline in the historical profession? I would say no. Because I think anytime you have a decline in the profession itself, you're actually seeing a good thing. But there was a recent op-ed in the New York Times from a professor, a history professor, and I'll talk about him in a minute, but that opined that we are seeing a dangerous decline in the profession of history. That what we're, what we're going to experience because of that is a new level of historical ignorance. Now, I can make the case, and I will make the case today, that what we are actually witnessing is because of the historical profession itself that America's historical ignorance, and there's a lot of it, is due in large part to the profession, to the proliferation of historical journals, to the, to the saturation of ridiculous monographs. All of these things have not really enhanced our understanding of the American past. They've confused it. And I think this is where a lot of people... Uh, really have a problem with modern, the modern historical profession. And one thing in the opening, and I'll talk about this with this particular professor, he says that you know he didn't anticipate there will be history wars. But if you've read enough history, you know that history wars have been around for a very long period of time. In fact, you can go back to the Roman Empire and talk about some of the Roman historians who were employed by the state to write a positive narrative of Roman history because it was there for propaganda. Everyone has understood the importance of history. Even in the Greek republics, the way that history, even recent history was portrayed, had a political motivation to it. So history, in fact, is inherently political. And this is where I say to people all the time, if we just taught the Constitution, if we just taught the Constitution, everything would be okay in America. Well, who's teaching it? Because if you have uh, people that teach it that are on the left... Well, they're going to teach it the way they want to teach it. So we're teaching the Constitution. They can say it. If we just taught the founding generation, well, who? Which ones? And how are we going to teach it? Do we listen to, uh, even on the right, someone like Michael Anton, whose views of the founding generation are, I think, incorrect? Or do we have someone else on the left teach it, who says the founding fathers is a bunch of old, dead, racist white guys? Or do we have an understanding of the founding that's based on, say, federalism, and the key political component of their entire role view, which was that, understanding federalism. Who teaches the founders, and how do we teach the founders, and what part of the founders do we teach? I mean, these are, these are big questions. So 
Anytime you get involved in history, it's an inherently political field. Even the subject material that you pick. For example, um, if you're a historian interested in, say, the Civil Rights Movement, well, typically you're going to be someone on the left because you're going to portray history from that perspective. You're going to find something in history and that you that you see as a leftist crusade. And you're going to go and study the Civil Rights Movement. Or maybe you get involved in progressives. Maybe you get involved in middle uh, 19th century progressives, or early 20th century progressives, and their crusade for moral reform. Maybe you're interested in uh, race relations, so you go after slavery, or you talk about race in America. These are political battles, inherently political battles. When you look at some of the earliest writers of, say, take an issue like slavery, which, by the way, if you're listening to this on Monday the 23rd of January 2023, my class, American Slavery, closes in just a couple of days. And because it closes in just a couple of days, this is the last chance you have to get in on it. So going out to McClanahan Academy enroll in American slavery. It's a live class, meaning you get me live four times. Use the coupon code SLAVERY and get a good deal. Right? So going out and use the coupon code SLAVERY, you get $200 off the class. And so do that, enroll in the class, and we'll talk about American slavery. But we'll also look at some of the people involved in this. In fact, the most prominent people involved in the discussion of slavery, for example, in the 20th century, if you say earliest. Now, we had U.B. Phillips, who wrote the first real comprehensive study on American slavery, post-war. And Phillips was kind of a progressive. Uh, you also had, early on, if you look at before the war, the people most interested in writing negative accounts of it, of course, were Northern reformers. You had some Southerners who were critical of it, certainly, even going back to the founding generation, critical of the institution. In fact, all the earliest uh, slave uh, anti-slavery societies were in uh, were in the South. But regardless, uh, you have this political motivation here. People like Eugene Genovese, early Marxist. Later, he he became a Catholic and you know kind of switched sides in that way. But his histories were always tainted with his early in interest in Marxism. Or you have uh, Fogel and Engerman or Stanley Elkins. Uh, all of these people. Uh, you know, these were people who were on the left interested in the study of slavery because they thought that it had an impact on modern society in the middle of the 20th century. So they wanted to find a, a link. C. Van Woodward was a Southern progressive. They're trying to find a link. So political motivation and political worldview always colors how you think of the past. It's, it's inevitable. Uh, this is one of my favorite books, Novick's That Noble Dream, where he talks about historical objectivity and how it doesn't really ever exist. And so what we're talking about in the history wars, as I get into this piece of the New York Times, is not a war over history. It's a war over interpretation of history. Interpretation of history is, what it's question, is what's being questioned right now. And of course, this particular author, th author thinks that once we lose the historical profession, quote-unquote, we're going to have a problem because nobody will write history anymore. And I find that to be completely insane. People will still write history. And a lot of people still do write history, even if they're not professional historians. And he's saying this is only going to be rich people to do this. Well, I don't think so. You have people that are just interested in it, that want to go out and find it. In fact, one of the most 
profitable areas of history right now for the profession, quote-unquote, or at least people interested in history, is genealogy. It always has been. But you look at websites like Ancestry.com or MyHeritage or all these things. I mean, uh, they are profiting extensively on amateur historians, people who are just trying to find information about their families. I saw a, a uh, there's a documentary series coming out. There's a woman that uh, is in New York, and she was just going back and looking at her history, and she found that she had confederates of color in her past. And um, she was shocked, but she said, if you watch the video, she doesn't know what to do with this. She says, this, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to process information. We were told that uh, the slavery, that the United States was good, the Confederacy is bad, these are evil people, slavery, etc. And now I've got ancestors who were fighting for the Confederacy, or at least supported the Confederacy, not only that, perhaps owned slaves. And she's basing that on a book by a guy named Gary Mills, who's now dead, but he taught at the University of Alabama for years, and he wrote a book about Creoles in Louisiana, about uh, these free people of color, because that's what they were, and that they supported the Confederacy. He has a nice little section of his book on it. This is something that I guess, you know, Kevin Levine uh, never really paid attention to, but regardless, um, she was shocked by this and didn't know how to process it. Why? Because of professional historians. Now, Levine, who I'm very critical of, is actually an amateur. This is the thing. Well, we're never going to get good history. Well, a lot of lefties love that book, Searching for Black Confederates. Levine's an amateur. He's not a professional historian. He's a high school history teacher, out of work most of the time. And he wrote this little book on, on black Confederates, which was awful. But still, he went out and tried to find the time to go write this book. I've done a review on that book, and I've... It just eviscerated it because of the research. It was pretty shoddy. But regardless, but regardless, Levine is an amateur historian. So it blows apart this idea that nobody's going to write history unless we have professional historians. So let me get into this piece uh, because I'll be, of course, making some of the same comments as I go through it. But the piece is written by a man named Daniel Bessner. Now, uh, Bessner is a tenure track professor. He's uh, very concerned about the future of the profession for tenure track. And it is, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a bloodbath out there. There are very few tenure track history uh, professions available. Um, you have a lot more PhDs than you have positions. And so people have asked me all the time, how do I get into what you do? Well, I would advise you not to. I mean, you're really going to be setting yourself up for a life of misery in terms of trying to find a job. Now, if you want to teach at a high school... Uh, that's a more available avenue for you. And I know a lot of people have done that. They, they've gone out and gotten advanced degrees and they teach in high schools. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I, you know, I say that about Levine, that he's a high school history teacher. There's a lot of good people to teach in high schools. And that's a noble profession, going into high schools. It's, that's a tough job. Anybody that's ever done it or anybody been around you know, high schools and uh, high school education, it's hard. Um, I, I mean, I tip my hat to every single person that does it. It's a hard job. Uh, but um, that's maybe an avenue you could pursue. But thinking that you're going to get a tenure-track position at a university or even a college, a small college. First of all, liberal arts colleges are dying because nobody goes to them anymore. Um, second, the colleges have figured out that they're not going to hire tenure-track people because it costs too much money, and they want to have more jobs for administrators. And actually, Bessner does a pretty good job explaining that in this particular piece. But I found some of this to be fascinating in that Bessner is a pretty young PhD. 
and I say fairly young. He's only had his PhD for about a decade. Um, he didn't graduate from college until 06. So maybe, you know, you're listening to this um, and you think, well, I mean, that's a little older than me. Uh, if you're not, not, me, not yours truly, but maybe you're younger and you're listening to this. But um, he's fairly young in the profession. And what I saw and what I've seen with people that were around, because I finished my PhD in 06. I took a, a break for a time and went back and did it. But um, the students that were there in 06 were not as good as the students that were there just a few years earlier. And the departments were dropping some pretty essential courses. I had the benefit of taking two historiographic uh, classes or historiography, one American historiography, the other European historiography. They were at one time required. And they were taught by uh, old-time professors. The first was taught by Clyde Wilson, in fact. The second was taught by Owen Connolly. Now, if you don't know Owen Connolly, Con Connolly, excuse me, Owen Connolly, he was the foremost Napoleonic scholar in the United States during his lifetime. Nobody was better. And his European historiography course was fantastic. Um, he also wrote a very good book on the French Revolution. People have asked me, you know, what do I get on the French Revolution? Get Owen Connolly, uh, Owen Connolly's textbook on the French Revolution. He taught it for years at South Carolina, but that is a really good book. He was not a Marxist. And he was critical of the Marxists and critical of the New Left. And he taught the French Revolution from a non-Marxist perspective, which was interesting. So if you want a non-Marxist view of the French Revolution, get Owen Connolly. All right, so let me get into the piece. He says, when I received my PhD in history in 2013, um, I didn't expect that within a decade, fights over history and historiography, even if a few people use that word, would become front page news. So he's correct about this, his historiography. What we're fighting over is interpretation. And that's what historiography is all about. It's interpretation. How are we interpreting the past? We have these things that happen. For example, we had slavery in America. Well, how do we interpret that, that institution? How do we interpret the impact of that in institution on America uh, before and after? What, what, how did this affect people? How do we interpret that major problem in American history, or the major problem of the American War for Independence, or the major problem of the American Civil War, or War for Southern Independence. How do we interpret these things is really where the war takes place, the war in history, the war over history. But over the last few years, that is precisely what has happened. Now, again, I say he's a young PhD, so he doesn't really understand it seems that these history wars have been going on for a very long time. As I mentioned before, you can go back 2,000 years and find history wars. You can go back to the ancient Greeks, classical Greeks, and find history wars as they started writing history. Uh, and particularly when it came to things like the Persian Wars and how that event was interpreted, or the Peloponnesian Wars, more importantly, uh, and how that event was interpreted. Uh, you had that kind of history wars back with the Greek historians. And then, of course, moving into American history, uh, just, for example, on the right, you go back uh, several years with people like Wilmore Kendall and Harry Jaffa and maybe Bradford. Those are history wars. See, I think that Bessner is missing some of this stuff because they don't teach it anymore. The ongoing debate, which I've talked about many times between Paul Gottfried, Michael Anton, and of course I started this when I published the piece on the 1776 Commission Report, which by the way, Bessner cites, not my piece, but the Commission Report, and Anton responded. 
is just another phase of the history wars that were going on in the 1970s and 80s between Jaffa and Bradford, essentially. That's all it is, or Kendall and Jaffa. I mean, that's all these things are. It's all that's happening here. These are history wars. It's interpretation. It's interpretation of the past. And all that's happened now is that you've had the left come under attack because there are some people, conservatives, that have a little bit more, a little bit higher profile, a little bit larger voice, more loud voice, who are able to challenge these things because of social media and because of the decentralized nature now of the internet. And people can get out there and say things and more people can have a say. This is what Bessner doesn't really like, actually. I'll get into that. He says, just look at the recent debates over America's legacy of slavery. What can be taught in public schools about the nation's founders and even the definition of what constitutes fascism? The interpretation of the American past has not in recent memory been as public or as contentious as it is now. Again, because I don't think he understands this. It has been as contentious. Conservatives have wrestled with these things for years. The left was more lockstep. But conservatives certainly have wrestled with this kind of stuff. And you've had history wars. You've had uh, the past up for debate at various times in American history. And even in um, recent memory, of course, maybe not his recent memory, but recent memory for people that are aware of these things. Uh, look, at the Abbeville Institute on, uh, on January 16th, uh, there was a piece by Boyd Cathy, and it was about the creation of Martin Luther King Day and how that was basically a history war. You had people criticizing the establishment mainstream version of why we needed a King holiday. And this was a history war. How was King remembered for history, for posterity? That's the That was up for debate. So Bessner says, maybe it started with the New York Times Magazine 1619 project. No, it didn't start with that. Of course, this did lead to a much more open discussion about these things. For whatever you think about the 1619 Project, it did stimulate discussion. And of course, again, at the Institute, they're producing the 1607 Project, which is a counter to this. Not two sides of the same coin, but a complete counter to the 1619 Project, which sought to reframe the, reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the con contributions of black Americans at the very center of our national narrative and which accompanied a national reckoning about race. No, not a national reckoning, but um, I don't think it, it's done any kind of reckoning at all. I mean, I think that people were hungry for this because they want to blame something or somebody for something that they think is an injustice. And um, look, I've, I've talked a lot about this but um, in various places, but... Um, None of the people that wrote in the New York Times 1619 Project were really professional historians. I mean, there were people that were academics mostly, but even Nicole Hannah-Jones is not a professional historian. So when he talks about we lose professional historians, we're going to lose good history like the 1619 Project, it blows apart his whole narrative. That was written by essentially amateurs and people out of the field. And this is the case. That provoked, perhaps inevitably, a right-wing backlash in the form of the 1776 report, a triumphalist Donald Trump-directed effort. 
Then came a raft of laws in conservative-governed states across the country aiming at to restrict and control history as taught in public schools. 1770, yeah, see, again, I've, when I wrote in Chronicles, picking apart the 1776 report, the commission, this is where people like Michael Anton didn't like it. It's not really that conservative. It's just a softer version of the 1619 Project. And it counters, well, you know, we had the proposition. The 1619 Project, again, kind of an aside here, is based on the proposition nation. So was the 1776 Commission Report. All that the 1776 Commission Report does is say, well, we actually achieved some of these things, whereas you say we didn't. They're two sides of the same coin. History, as historian Matthew Karp has written, has become a new kind of political priority. No, 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 no. It's not new. Matthew Karp is a socialist, first of all, and he's written a book on Calhoun that was simply based on his political persuasion. You have to tear down someone like Calhoun. It was a political polemic. You just, it's thinly, it's, it's veiled. Thinly veiled to somebody if you know what you're looking for. But it's a polemic. He's basically regurgitating the slave power from the 1850s. Why? Because of politics. One of the things that the Straussians have tried to do, the West Coast Straussians in particular, tried to do is distance themselves from Calhoun and others because they think that taints conservatism. If Russell Kirk says Calhoun is a conservative, well, then that means you're all just a bunch of racists. Uh, and so Karp knows what he's doing. If you can attach that back to conservatism, well, then conservatives are just a bunch of racists. You see, we're still just doing the same old thing. Carp is a LARPer. He walks around in flannel shirts and thinks he's one of the people. He never really was any of that. Uh, but regardless, uh, he, he's a LARPing socialist. Has become a new kind of political priority for people across the political spectrum. A means to fight over what it is to be an American. Which values we should emphasize. Which groups we should honor. Which injustices we should redress. It's always been this way. This has always been. I mean, look, you go back and you look at early 20th century history or late 19th century history. That's exactly what historians are doing then. They're doing the same thing. Which groups we should honor? Which values we should emphasize? Which injustices we should redress or any? Are there any injustices to redress? All of this was already discussed 100 or 150 years ago. As the profession became a profession, people did this kind of stuff all the time. And amateur historians were doing the exact same thing. History is inherently political. It's not a new kind of political priority. It's always been political. It's always been subjective. Always. The historical profession has likewise been roiled in by controversy. Last August, James H. Sweet, the president of the American Historical Association, published an essay in which he argued that present-focused narratives of African slavery often represent Historical erasures and narrow politics. This is true. He was actually saying something that was true. Now, of course, the left didn't like that. So they excoriated him for it and forced him into, a, into you know, getting into a fetal position and then tucking his tail between his legs and apologizing for what I have yet to, to understand. But he was correct about this. Again, the Novik book, That Noble Dream. You couldn't really publish a book like that now and call out the left for being a bunch of fascists, which is what they are, intellectual fascists. I'll never forget, I'll always remember this, in graduate school, when a professor of mine showed 
a chart, and I've said it on this podcast before, about Reconstruction and the interpretations of Reconstruction. And now you had a much more vibrant discussion about Reconstruction and the time before Eric Foner became such a dominant figure in the field. It was all these different all these different interpretations and different studies, and then it all narrowed out to race because of Eric Foner. You see, the leftist fascists, which fascism really is a leftist ideology, the leftist fascists have controlled the narrative. The peace engendered a firestorm of reproach. Firestorm. These lefties really love themselves. A firestorm. We're going out there. This we're, we're starting a firestorm against this guy. We're so powerful. Keyboard firestorm. With scholars variously accusing Dr. Sweet of attempting to delegitimize new research on topics including race and gender. Some even accused Dr. Sweet of outright racism. Of course, he wasn't. The guy's a leftist, just like them. Same thing with someone like John T. Edge, who is, uh, you know, wrote this book, The Potlicker Papers. It's all about race. But he is not sufficiently woke enough most of the time. And so you have to go after John T. Edge. See, these people consume their own. And, and that's the issue with all of this. It's a perpetual revolution. Sweet's not a racist. He's a leftist, just like they are. But he didn't say the properly uh, defined and narrowly defined social justice terms. And he criticized what they're doing as perhaps troubling and, and long-term destructive, as the piece says, for the historical profession. Because when you lose real inquiry and you focus too narrowly on certain things and say this is it and you can't have deviation from that, like Sweet tried to do, well, then you've lost the profession anyways. What... Bessner is not realizing is that what he's arguing for is what's destroying the profession. Yet as Americans fight over their history, the historical profession itself is in rapid, maybe even terminal decline. Twelve days after Dr. Sweet published his column, the AHA released a jobs report that makes for grim reading. The average number of available new tenure-track university jobs, which are secure jobs that provide living wages, benefits, and stability, between 2020 and 2022 was 16% lower than it was for the four years before the pandemic. The report further notes that only 27% of those who received a PhD in history in 2017 were employed as tenure-track professors four years later. As I've said, do not go out and get a PhD in history. You have a one-in-four shot, a 27% shot of getting a tenure-track job. Most of the time, you're going to be an adjunct, and that's if you can even find the adjunct jobs, and you're going to be living... Uh, pretty, I mean, pretty paltry life. You're not going to be able to support a family on this. Go teach in a high school. Go do something like that. Become an amateur historian. Go out and, I mean, look, Kevin Levine, for all the problems with this book, has shown that you can go teach in high school and go write history. And you can, you can get published. Uh, you can do all of this stuff. You just don't have this tenure-track position. The work of, the histor of historians has been deprofessionalized, and people like myself who have tenure-track jobs will be increasingly rare in coming years. This is a good thing. Deprofessionalization actually will produce, I think, better histories in the long run because you won't have to toe the line, so to speak, on everything that the tenure-track, the establishment profession would make you want to do. 
and I and I always again I refer back to this. Cynthia Nicoletti wrote a book on secession and Jefferson Davis and the trial of Jefferson Davis had to essentially apologize in the book for saying that her evidence didn't point to a critical position on Davis or the South or secession, but she believed those things anyways. You have to apologize to the profession, the fascists in the profession, just to get that tenure-track job. What's the point? This is true for all academic fields, not just history. As Adriana Kesner, Tom D. Poella, and Daniel T. Scott note in their book, The Gig Academy, about 70% of all college professors work off the tenure track. The majority of these professors make less than $3,500 per course, according to a 2020 report by the American Federation of Teachers. Jobs that used to allow professors to live middle-class lives now barely enable them to keep their heads above water. What is to blame? In the past generation, the American university has undergone a, dr a drastic transformation. To reduce costs, university administrators have dramatically reduced tenure. And as the protections of tenure have withered away, non-teaching university staff sizes have exploded. From 1976 to 2018, full-time administrators and other professionals employed by these institutions increased by 164% and 452%, according to a 2021 paper on the topic. Professors have been sacrificed on the altar of vice deans. Again, 100% true. The administration thinks they are the college. The college is a business, and it's to push people through to get degrees. That's what the whole point is. The college would not exist without the professors, but the administrators believe that it will. This is the, this is the catch in all of this stuff. He's exactly right about this. Um, so and why did they have to reduce costs? They don't have to. A lot of these schools are sitting with large endowments. Now, some of them are not, and they're just trying to get by. But again, you would not have a college without professors. But what they figured out is that if you hire a whole bunch of adjuncts, well, you can, you can make money because professors, full-time professors cost money. Adjuncts do not. Adjuncts do not. Now, one of the other things happening in education um, is that we're seeing a decline in college students. It's dramatically going down. We're going to see it for a while. Um, so you're having fewer and fewer students. There was an explosion in colleges and universities, and then that's shrinking again. So you had a lot of people got in, and now there's, those jobs are going away, and they're not being replaced because there's no need for them anymore. That's also happening. At the same time, in an effort to fund research that might redound to their financial benefit and to demonstrate their pragmatic value to politicians and the public, universities have emphasized science, technology, engineering, and math at the expense of the humanities. As the American Academy of Arts and Sciences reported, citing data from 2019, spending for humanities research equaled 0.7% of the amount dedicated to STEM R&D. STEM R&D, right? So more people going into the hard areas, not humanities, history, literature. And that is unfortunate. But again, it's because of jobs. The humanities, including history, are often considered more an object of ridicule than a legitimate lane of study. Look no further than statements from politicians. Rick Scott, the former governor of Florida, assembled a task force in 2020 that recommended that people who major in history and other humanities fields be charged higher tuition at state universities. In 2016, Governor Matt Bevin of Kentucky said that French literature majors should not receive state funding for their degrees. Even more recently, in 2021, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida mocked people who go into debt to end up with degrees in things like zombie studies. 
It's not just Republicans. President Barack Obama remarked in 2014 that folks can make a lot more money, potentially, with skilled manufacturing or the trades that they might make with an art history degree, implying that if a degree didn't make money, it isn't worth it. Mr. Obama later apologized to the University of Texas art historian for his remarks, clarifying that he, that he did believe an art history was a valuable subject again. I mean, it's just stupid. Oh, well, I'm sorry I offended this art history teacher, art history professor. But I do agree art history is a valuable subject. Um, and if you can study these things and go out and do something else, that's great. But when you get, again, the idea of the university is to produce more and more students and graduate students, I mean, you can charge graduate students more and they get these degrees and they can't do anything with them, then you do run into problems. These material and ideological assaults have engendered a steep decline in undergraduate humanities majors. In the 2018-19 academic year, only 23,923 graduating undergraduates received degrees in history and related fields, which, as the AHA notes, is down more than a third from 2012 and the smallest number awarded since the late 1980s. Again, we're seeing a shrinking number of college students, but also people are moving away from these degrees. 23,000 graduating undergraduates got a history degree. 23,000. Now, are there enough jobs for these people out there with those degrees to do anything? You can go into history. Again, teaching history in high school, you could probably find a job. Lots of high schools need people. Uh, so, I mean, maybe you could do that. But it's very hard if those people all went to graduate school. Well, there's not 23,000 jobs for history PhDs. There's like 23. <laughs> so, you see, it declines exponentially. Private groups which traditionally provided significant financial support to budding humanities scholars have taken the hint and increasingly stopped supporting the humanities and soft social sciences. The Social Science Research Council recently ended its International Dissertation Research Fellowship Program, which in the last 25 years funded over 1,600 scholars exploring non-U.S. cultures and U.S. indigenous communities, declaring that the program accomplished many of the goals it had set for itself. The Ford Foundation has similarly decided to conclude its long-running National Academics, Fel Academics Fellowship Program for historically marginalized scholars in order, in order, the Foundation's president declared, to invest more deeply in movement-building work. It's the end of history. The consequences will be significant. Now, this is where you get into hyperbole. Because I don't think there's ever going to be this dramatic loss of history. Not when you can point to example after example after of example of amateurs writing good history. Entire areas of our shared history will never be known because no one will receive a living wage to uncover and study them. That's not true. It's not true at all. People will go out and still do this stuff. It's implausible to expect scholars with insecure jobs to offer bold and innovative claims about history when they can easily be fired for doing so. Well, he's actually pointing against his own, the own leftist fascists in the universities because try to go out and make a bold uh, and innovative claim that uh, goes against the Eric Foner school, for example, and you won't get a job. Or how about the professor that uh, was fired, an adjunct professor that was fired in, I think, Minnesota for showing a picture of the Prophet Muhammad in class because this was insensitive to people. I mean, this is the left controlling everything. Even when she told students, I'm going to be doing this, it's a, it's, a, it's a work of art, I'm going to be showing this in the syllabus. And before she showed it, she actually you know, said, students, if anybody has a problem with this, you know, get it, let me know, I won't show it. Nobody said anything, so she shows it. And then a student in the class complains. So they fired her. 
well, what's going on there? Is that conservatives or is that a bunch of leftist dopes? Instead, history will be studied increasingly by the wealthy, which is to say those able to work without pay. By the wealthy. I mean, come on. It's easy to see how this could lead American historical scholarship to adopt a pro-status quo bias. It's already done that. It's already done that. The status quo now is the left. So, I mean, we're going to have that in perpetuity, if you believe what Bessner is saying here. These people really believe they're out there finding all these new things and changing the way we think about them. They're all just funneling into the same stupidity. They really believe that they are these social justice crusaders and they're sticking it to the man when they are the man. This is the funniest part about all of it. In today's world, if you don't have access to elite networks, financial resources, or both, it just doesn't make sense to pursue a career in history. In the future, history won't just be written by the victors, it'll also be written by the well-to-do. Come on. No, not, no. It won't. People will go, still go out and try to research history and they'll try to figure things out and they'll write stuff and a bunch of lefties will think it's great and they'll publish it. In fact, some of them, I mean, again, I pointed to the 1619 Project. It wasn't written by a bunch of wealthy historians, not even academic historians in many cases, but people that did other things and Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's a journalist, she even said it, this is journalism. If Americans don't seriously invest in history and other humanities disciplines, we encourage the ahistoric ignorance upon which reaction relies. Many Republican politicians support divisive concepts laws that try to regulate what college professors teach. Are they aiming at an easy target in the culture war? Perhaps, he, again, his politics. This is, this is the thing. Bessner is a leftist, and he's blaming this all on the right without realizing that what they've done is actually destroyed themselves by stifling debate, by not allowing dissident voices in the profession, right people on the right, they've destroyed themselves. If you had a vigorous discussion of history in the academy itself, Republicans, quote-unquote, who are supposedly conservatives, would not be saying a word about this stuff. But there's no other voice. So they just cut it. Perhaps, but it's also true that a humanities education encourages thinking that often challenges xenophobic and racist dogma. Progress depends on studying and arguing about the past in an open and informed manner. This is especially true in a moment like our own, in which America's use of history to fight over which vision of the country will dominate politics. If there are no historians to reflect meaningfully and accurately on the past, then ignorance and hatred are sure to triumph. Again, a bunch of hyperbole actually uh, reflect meaningfully and accurately, the, these people don't do that. The lefties don't do that. They don't reflect meaningfully and accurately on anything. Ignorance and hatred? Well, I could say it's them that's ignorant and stupid and hates. They really do hate the right. They hate anybody that doesn't agree with them. And they try to, they try to get rid of them. I mean, I would ask Bessner, well, how many conservatives do you know in the profession? Well, well, uh, because uh, it just encourages, oh, uh, we're, we're against, you know, we don't like conservatives because history tells us that these people. Well, maybe that's not true. Maybe just what you're reading tells you that. Because you're, you're just simply sitting around with each other and regurgitating what everybody else is. It's nepotism, regurgitating what everybody else says so you can get a job. This is the whole point of this. That's why people are upset about this stuff. 
Without professional historians, history education will be left more and more into the hands of social media influencers, partisan hacks, and other unconcerned with achieving a complex, empirically informed understanding of the past. I mean, without these people, partisan hacks like Charles Dew, whose book, a book Apostles of Disunion, is a polemic. That's all it is. He tells you from the beginning that's what he's doing. It's a polemic. Partisan hacks. Like the 1619 Project. Or the 1776 Commission Report. Either one. Take, for example, Bill O'Reilly's 12 Books and Counting, Killing Series, the best-selling nonfiction series of all time, according to Mr. O'Reilly's publishers, whose very framing sensationalizes the past by focusing on the death and destruction of some of the most influential men and powerful nations in human history. So see, Bill O'Reilly. We're going to get all our history from Bill O'Reilly. And look, I, I think that's awful. Bill O'Reilly's books, particularly ones that are focused on Lincoln and others. This is stupid. They're, they're ridiculous. The same can be said about Rush Limbaugh's Rush Revere series for young people, in which a time-traveling and tri-cornered hat-hatted Mr. Limbaugh teaches about some of the most exceptional Americans. Points out, you know, what, what about the series um, that is now in every bookstore where you have all these leftist heroes with their own little history books for kids. I mean, go and he points out these books that might be the best-selling books of all time, but go into your bookstore and see how many books are written by conservatives on the shelves and how many are written by leftists. I mean, just go look at it. If you go into the new nonfiction section, everything is about race, and it's all popular stuff, and this is what people read. The conservative market... In the conservative section or any conservative books is very small. This is just, I mean, these people live in a fantasy world where somehow it's a boogeyman. Bill O'Reilly and Rush Limbaugh are boogeymen. They're straw. We have to, well, look at these books. If all we do, if we don't have real historians like me, well, you're just going to have Bill O'Reilly and Rush Limbaugh out there teaching history, and that's, we can't have that. Or look at, or look at Twitter. Consider Twitter, where debates over history regularly erupt and just as regularly devolve into name calling. By who? I mean, look, anytime you challenge a leftist on Twitter, they block you. It's, it's just ridiculous. Because they can't be challenged. They're too thin-skinned. If professional historians become a thing of the past, there will be no one able to temper these types of arguments with cool-headed analysis and bring a seriousness of purpose depth and thoughtful consideration to discussions of who Americans are and who we want to be as a nation. Yeah, that's not really happening by any leftist. I mean, you know, look at Kevin Cruz, right? There's no thoughtful anything there. He's a snarky little hack who's a plagiarist and got called on it. And of course, nothing really happened uh, because they weren't going to do anything about it. But I mean, the evidence is pretty clear that Cruz was um, dabbling in plagiarism. Now, again, nothing happened. I didn't think anything would happen. The university wasn't going to take away his job or anything. It wasn't going to happen. But um, he is someone that regularly blocks people that disagree with him. And look, the Twitter historian brigade is awful. These people are just completely awful. Most of them are not very bright. And uh, they, 
they don't like any dissent. So we don't have discussions. We have my way or the highway from the left. Why would uh, would Bessner have a problem with you know Bill O'Reilly or Rush Limbaugh's if they're just so bad? Well, then I'm sure somebody would be willing to publish something refuting all this stuff. And people publishers love that stuff. They usually would. So write something that shows how bad they are. And I'm sure you can get a mainstream publisher to publish it. No problem. Americans must do everything in their power to avert the end of history. If we don't, exaggerations, half-truths, and outright lies will dominate our historical imagination and make it impossible to understand and learn from the past. Well, this is what's going on right now, exactly. I mean, exaggerations, they're all over the place. Half-truths, everywhere. Outright lies, all the time. Coming from the left. This is why I find this piece so funny. Give it to the New York Times for publishing a bunch of garbage like this. But these people are so... They have no self-awareness. What they've done for years is exactly this, which is tarnish the profession. That's the real issue. All right. So I wanted to start the week this week with this. We've got a lot more coming up. A lot of good stuff this week. So hang with me. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.